Welcome to Social Stories, Australia's most inspiring podcast, where you'll hear the stories from socially conscious people all over the world making a difference. So listen in, feel inspired, and enjoy our show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Social Stories. I have had a manic week or a couple of weeks. I have been traveling up to the Alpine region and into the city of Melbourne. I've been doing some consulting and marketing and brand sessions with the School for Social Entrepreneurs for two of their accelerator programs. I I'm so excited. I just absolutely love teaching. I forgot. I don't know why I never, ever became a teacher, but it's one of my favorite things to do. Um, And it has just made me feel really energized. And I absolutely love getting feedback from people and having people want to connect and um, and just learning. Um, Yeah, I, you know, I started this journey a couple of years ago pretty much because of the School for Social Enterprise program. Um, It really kind of stirred up a fire in my belly after meeting some awesome people, starting some awesome businesses. Um, And some of those people I'm still in contact with today. And, you know, they really just challenged the way that I had always thought about business um, from making money into actually making a difference. And um, I think that's why I really love social enterprise because the world of charity really scared me and the idea of, you know, fundraising and getting these huge amounts of funds, I just thought um, sounded really difficult, but I know business and that's something I've always been really comfortable with. Um, And being able to combine the two is just an absolute dream. So, yeah, I just want to send out some praise and hopefully I've got some of my um, students from that class listening. Um, I definitely will be interviewing a couple here on the podcast because there is just some awesome, awesome stuff happening in the social enterprise space. So I'm excited to bring some of those guys on here. Anyhow, speaking of awesome socially conscious businesses. I have another amazing podcast guest today. I've tried to flip this podcast around as urgently as possible because my guest is currently launching a campaign via crowdfunding platform Kickstarter. Um, So I thought it would be really good timing for us to get in touch and to get you guys engaged in the whole process and to learn some awesome tips. So let me introduce you to Rosh Govindaraj, the founder of Isara Leva. Rosh is currently based over in London, but as you will find out in the episode, she is a bit of a world traveler. Um, and I'm really excited because this podcast just has some amazing gems, even though our Skype broke down about five times in the middle of this, which has just been unheard of for the both of us. So I will leave you guys to it. Enjoy the show. All right, let's get started. 
Today's guest on the Social Stories podcast is the lovely Rosh Govindaraj, the founder of Isara Leather Goods. I'm so excited to introduce you all to Rosh and talk about her upcoming, actually right now, she's holding her crowdfunding campaign um, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Welcome to the show, Rosh. Thanks so much, Rochelle. And so I know that uh, many of my listeners would be familiar with uh, the fact that I've found so many of our guests and so many other people that I've collaborated with through uh, the Like-Minded Bitches Drinking Wine group. Um, How long have you been a member of the group, Rosh? I think I joined back in April. Um, Another, do you you know Gustavia, the girl who does the shoes for women with large feet? Yes, I have seen her post before. Yes, so uh, Via actually mentioned the group to me, so that's how I joined. It's been great. Oh, awesome. Well done. Uh, So I love to get started by getting an understanding of your background, you know, where did you grow up? What were you interested in? What were you passionate about? Did you love school? Did you hate school? You know, um, just tell us a bit more about yourself. Sure. It's kind of, um, it's not the most straightforward journey because my family moved around a lot when I was younger. But um, I was born in Bangalore in India and we moved to Malaysia when I was gosh, I think it was like four or five. Um, And I was back and forth between the two countries for a couple of years. And then uh, we moved to Australia when I was seven. So I'd say that like my, most of my formative years were spent in Australia, but I have really fond memories of Malaysia. And uh, with India, it's very much memories of me going to visit as opposed to living there. Cause I think I was a bit too young to remember that very well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, school was always great growing up. I enjoyed it. Um, it was always different. I think being a third culture kid that like has really come across in who I am now, you know, like I I feel pretty comfortable everywhere, but I also never totally feel at home. Like I, I can sort of blend in with most people and have something to talk about and get along with pretty much everybody. But at the same time, when people say like, where's home? Well, home is Melbourne, but do I feel entirely at home when I'm there? Probably not completely. No, and I'm I'm sure less so now that you're in London. <laughs> well, yeah, I, like in the last few years, I've lived in Los Angeles, London, Wellington, and Sydney. Oh, and wow. Jakarta, how could I forget? Indonesia, which is where the whole thing started. So, um, no, I really enjoy like traveling, but more so the slow way. I prefer living there for a couple of years and getting to know the language and the customs. I think it's really important. Wow. So you are pretty much a professional traveler then. (laughs) Um, I guess so. I guess so. It's been a while since I've lived in Melbourne. So it's it's definitely like pretty much since I finished uni, I haven't been there very long. Wow. So when you're at school, what kind of things were you interested in? What did you do? What were you passionate about? Oh man. Um, it seems like such a long time ago, but it's probably because it was. <laughs> I, well, I was always into the creative sort of arenas, so I really enjoyed dancing and painting and all of that, and I did as many of those, um, not extracurriculars, but they were electives for us as, as I could. Um, but I sort of ended up going down the professional consultant accounting path when I finished. So I worked for about eight years. So straight out of high school, I started working at KPMG um, and then moved into PwC. So very much professional corporate environments. 
Wow. Yeah. I found that with um, most of the um, people that I've been interviewing on the podcast, we've all started in the the corporate realm and kind of expanded out of there. Yeah. I think, look, even if you don't love it at the beginning or ever, it's... um it's a really good training ground, and I found that with both of the professional services firms, you're you're starting. So when I started, I was seventeen. Like I, I shouldn't have been allowed to drink, and no one would know that because they assumed that if you work for a big firm, you must at least be an adult. Um, <laughs> so and that was great. Like I had such a great first few years because it was, you know, you get to wear a suit. It felt like playing dress ups. You're learning so much more than you ever do at school or uni. It's like practical training, and it's exciting to have your own clients. So definitely learned a lot, but the burnout sets in pretty quick as well because the hours are so, so long. Mm-hmm. Um, 100%. And yeah, and I mean it was great because as like one of the main reasons I went into that role and accepted that job was that I knew that there was a lot of travel involved in professional services um, and I got to work in a number of different countries and got a secondment to Indonesia and sort of that was probably the turning point for me because um, I was there first for three months and on my last day there I got offered another job to come back like more long term. So I went back for another couple of years um, and it was amazing. Like it's just the most incredible country to live in and it's so different to home and, you know, they, they speak a different language, the food's different. It's, it's everything about it is on a totally different level um, but I think that's why I loved it. Wow. So how many languages can you speak then with all this travel? You must be quite multilingual. Uh, let me think. I, I do speak Indonesian. I was fluent. I would say now I'm semi-fluent. It's been a couple of years. Um, so English, Indonesian. English is actually like my fourth language. So Telugu, Kannada, Tamil. I probably speak five fluently now. I've yeah. forgotten a couple. Wow, I'm so envious of people that can fluently speak multiple languages. So good on you. And you just sound like a true blue Aussie through and through, so you would have no idea. <laughs> oh. oh, man, um, you should have had my accent when I first moved over. It was hilarious because I just moved so from Malaysia and there's a specific Malaysian accent, but also I'd gone to a, an international British school, which so I had this like semi-British accent as well and combine that with somewhat of an Indian accent people were just like I don't understand why you sound like this where are you coming from (laughs) (laughs) oh fabulous so you just um you did kind of touch on it earlier so the start of Isara happened in Jakarta Indonesia did it uh, not in Jakarta. I was living in Jakarta at the time, but um, Indonesia is a massive place and a stunning one at that. And uh, there's a lot of like loads of villages and stuff, with, and they've got a huge heritage of craftsmanship. So I, I was pretty much traveling every weekend or as many weekends as I could get away. And um, it was yeah on one of these trips that I sort of came across the whole leatherworking thing and fell in love with it. Wow. So what does uh, Isara mean? Isara is actually a Thai word, so it means freedom. Um, It was just a word that I came across when I was traveling in Thailand, and I loved the concept. It's a liberty that I hold really dear. But the brand itself has no connections to Thailand. (laughs) It's just just a word that I really like the sound of and the meaning of. Yeah, it's it's lovely, and it it does roll off the tongue the tongue easy. Uh, good choice. So, um, so obviously you were traveling on the weekends, having a look around, um, doing I guess what most people would do whilst they're traveling, and I'm sure 
there's so many of us that go around traveling and are like, oh, I love this. This would be such an amazing business idea. Um, At home. Yeah. yeah. But it's it takes one in a million, I think, to actually make that a reality. I mean, I was joking with my partner the other day about this huge um, shoe company that's launched called Ancient Greek Sandals who are sold on Net-A-Porte and all of that. And that was one of my random ideas years and years ago. I was like, no one makes sandals like they do in Greece and blah, blah, blah. And so how did you make your you know, your, your traveling kind of interest, a, you know, turn that into a business concept? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it all actually happened pretty quickly because I think the whole idea of starting a business, it's something I've always wanted to do was to work for myself. And I love the idea of building something from scratch. Cause I think that's what entrepreneurship is about, right? Creating value out of something that doesn't exist. Um, but this particular thing, so that weekend, I was actually on a on a dive trip, so I was on a dive boat, and um, basically in between dives, you're doing like lessons. And so one of the guys who was sitting next to me pulled like his papers out of this really lovely bag, and like it, looked, it was gorgeous and just looked, you know, like it had been around for a while, but in a really great way. Like it had so much quality and character. Um, and I saw him where he got it and he mentioned that he, it was like custom made. So later on that weekend, I went to one of the workshops with him and like sketched a couple of things and had them made. So like two days later, went back and picked it up. And like the whole process was just so amazing, like so much more special than picking up something from the nearest high street store. Like you pick your leather, you can either pick from their designs or draw up your own, you pick your fittings. And it was like, it was just the coolest experience um and it's quite common in asia like to go and get your clothing made to order and to get accessories made which i think we're not as used to in australia or in in a lot of western countries like it's just completely unaffordable and it's not really um it's not really normal either you know no um and i thought hang on like this experience was so amazing that and there was no reason why it couldn't be done for people at home, like we've got the internet and that's a great way to democratize what, well, you know, something that should be available to everybody. So that's, that's really how it started. And, um, it started pretty small though. So I brought my bag back home and, um, people were asking about it and were asking if they could sort of have their own made the next time I went back. But, but you know what, there, there is a bit of a market for this. Um, I did a little bit of research. So like, I've got to say, I sort of dived into it. I didn't spend too much time researching or anything. I kind of went by gut feel, but what I had noticed was years and years of working in corporate. Um, there's loads of brands that do very high end bags, but they're sort of thousands of dollars and the quality is debatable as well as the ethics behind it. And I really don't like sort of having logos everywhere. Mm. Um, and I thought, you know what, there's a few guys brands that kind of fall in the right sort of level, but there's, there's not much for girls out there. And, um, in general as well, like not, not many brands that take you through sort of their production journey. So I figured, well, I'll start one of my own. Amazing. That must've been such an exciting time to really see that there was a market for that. So how did you start to go from conceptualizing the whole idea and getting your friends kind of in on it and doing the small one piece, you know, here and there to actually creating a business behind it? And where were you at the time of doing that? Considering you were kind of moving between states, that must've been states, I mean, countries that must've been a really difficult task. Um, yeah, so at the beginning, I've got it, like I think it's 
ignorance was actually a bit of a blessing because I didn't realize how big the task was. I was just really excited to go out to these villages, which were about a seven-hour drive from where I was living, from Jakarta. So I'd be going just every weekend, and they were beautiful places to go, so it wasn't exactly a chore. Um, and, you know, I, I knew what I had in mind, which was I wanted to offer – sort of beautiful, very high-quality leather goods that were not super overpriced. Um, and I wanted to let people make their own bags, so as in design their own bags. What I very quickly found out was that um, people love the idea of it, but they're terrified of putting you know, pen to paper and actually designing something. And so often I'd get, what do you think of this? What lining should I use? Well, how does this look? Um, and so I pivoted, and so I, I, I decided to do all the designing myself and um, but stuck with the rest of the theme, which was making minimalist luxury quality leather goods that are really well-priced and, most importantly, that, that are ethically made. And um, I think that stuck, like that actually really resonated with people. So at the beginning, I literally just had an Instagram account um, and a landing page up, which were like really quickly put together. I'm not super technologically, um, like I'm not a coder or anything, so I needed to find someone to make the website for me, just given I was doing everything else. Um, and I was collecting email addresses religiously, which I think is really important, is to build your mailing database because it's a group of people that you know are interested and excited by what you're doing. Um, so it does when it does come time for you to launch, you've got an engaged audience ready to go. And so that's what happened. So um, all of this started, like, I basically had the idea in June 2014, um, quit my job, gosh, I think it was two weeks later. Um, wow. And then, is that easy to say? <laughs> yeah, it is insane. Like I said, uh, head first, right? Amazing. So, I love that attitude. So many people would be so nervous to do that. <laughs> I, I just really enjoyed it. Like, I mean, I was like, you know what? I actually had a couple of sales from some really, like, so exciting sales like there was a girl who I barely spoke to like it was a colleague from years ago who bought two bags she spent like $800 um and there was a, a guy who had offered me a job and he was CEO of one of Asia's biggest e-commerce companies and he was a customer and because I was telling him I'm not taking your job because I'm doing this instead and he was like oh that sounds really cool can you make me a bag and um he ordered a, a weekend and a wallet and I remember I remember bringing it to him like two weeks later and he he just he was so excited and like the look on his face when he he swapped all this stuff over straight away as well I think like you could not wipe the smile off my face that day <laughs> wow that's amazing getting that kind of firsthand customer feedback I'm sure and um it's amazing how connected we can be to um you know our bags and and leather goods and um you know I was only just reading today about how much even the biggest most luxurious brands across the world rely on uh, their leather handbags as their primary source of income, like the likes of, you know, the Gucci's and Versace's of the world. Um, I think even Chanel, I think I was reading 80% of their revenue comes from leather goods. So, I mean, massive market, massive opportunity. So, you know, kudos to you. So, so exciting. And surprisingly, leather exports and finished leather goods end up being quite high up there so they're a big source of economic income and it's just in the I mean leather's been used for hundreds maybe thousands of years now um and the industry hasn't changed very much in terms of it's done like traditional manufacturing 
you know, you, you make a bunch of bags and then it's pushed through to you like from a, a supply side. Whereas I really think that it needs to be flipped around. It should be demand based. People should be asking for stuff before it's made and that way, sorry, before it's made and that way it, there's no wastage. So that's why initially like it started off um, for financial reasons. Obviously, I didn't have any back. It was it, it could still is completely bootstrapped. So I liked the idea of have, get, receiving an order, making the item, and sending that off. Um, I mean, it's not the most profitable way, but it's certainly the most sustainable way, I think. And also, there's just zero waste. So we don't have hundreds of bags that are made and that are sitting around um, that need to then go on fire sale because we've wrongly judged what customers want. Um, so we actually still make every piece to order, and that sort of. Ha- really helps just in terms of making sure that the right stock gets out there. Definitely such a, such a great model. I think, you know, that made to order um, and customization is a really great way of making sure that you can, you know, you're not overstocking and over purchasing. I know for my store, that's one of the things I hate. And I like literally only buy like one of everything because then I think if it doesn't sell, then at least it's not going to be wasted. I'll find a way to use it in my house or something. Like I'm so um, anal about that. No, exactly. I mean, it's not a very efficient model and I'm surprised that like more people are not doing it this way. Um, I think we're definitely seeing a turnaround, especially in the service industries with all the on-demand services, right? Like Ubers and, and Airbnb and stuff. Like you don't see any of them done the way that manufacturing is done with goods. They don't, they don't, have a guess and, and create hundreds of houses and then say, all right, we need to get rid of these now. It's, it's based on, it comes from the customer. It's based on demand. And I think that's the way that it should be. Definitely. So when you talk about being ethical, um, you know, I think it is quite, um, a, you know, a very broad term and can mean so many different things. Um, when yeah. you talk about being ethical, what does that mean for Asara? Yeah, sure. So I think, as you said, it's a really broad word and it can mean an entirely different thing to each person. Um, so for me personally, it, the focus is on the people and how they're treated. So what I have total control over here is to ensure that they're paid a fair living wage um, and in many cases they're like three, four, sometimes five times as much as a minimum wage and that's something that I have a massive sticking point with is the minimum wage in a lot of countries is pathetically insufficient. Um, secondly, uh, our artisans do receive health care, so health insurance for themselves and for their families. Um, and so that's a big sort of, that provides a lot of peace of mind. And it's a big cost that otherwise can really hit a family hard is unexpected bills for, for illnesses. Um, and the last one is a, a savings plan. So a lot of these guys, like they're artists, you know, they're not, um, they're not business people and that really comes across. And so financially and with process and stuff that when we first started working with them they weren't very good with it um they didn't see the need behind it you know but um it's actually really important i think in terms of longevity and help to help plan for their future sorry i'm gonna cut out and go back a bit is that okay yeah go for it yeah uh i just wish i was good enough what i was saying start from savings plan if you want yeah okay cool um and the last thing is a Oh, fuck's sake, sorry. So <laughs> you might want to leave that out. <laughs> oh, sorry, Mr. Podcast Editor. <laughs> All right. So 
So the savings plan. Um, and the last thing is we do ensure that they have money that goes into an interest-yielding savings plan. And so what that means is just that they do realise the importance of planning financially for their future, which a lot of these guys are not the greatest at doing. Um, and it helps actually ensure that, that their families are provided for in the future. Amazing. That's such so, an important thing. Yeah, so, like, I mean, those are the three focus areas for me in terms of they're people-related, right? And um, that's a really big part of what ethical means to me. Like, and, of course, you know, their their working conditions are great and they get appropriate breaks and they only work sort of eight or nine hours a day. And if they do any overtime, they get compensated for that. Yeah, and that would just create such... Um, All the things that we take for granted. Sorry, Sorry, we just were talking over each other then. I was going to say, uh, so that would create such a great relationship with you and them as suppliers as well. Like that would make them want to continue to deal with you more, um, which I think is so opposite of the way that every other company is run where they are just continuously trying to screw over their suppliers and make everyone compete against each other. And that's, you know, what we've seen with the, the world of fast fashion in Bangladesh. So such an important thing thing um it is I absolutely think it is but unfortunately and I I actually I was surprised to learn this as well but initially when we first started working with these guys they actually just didn't understand what I was doing you know like why would you pay more when you don't have to she must be stupid it's because she's a woman (laughs) Um, there, there were a lot of like really confused faces and like often they wouldn't realize that I spoke their language and so they would talk about me behind their back behind my back (laughs) um and to be fair like it's not like they're bad people at all like most of them are really wonderful people it's cultural differences right and it's it's part of like working in asia but um they it it, as an industry it's mostly older men so like the average age is probably i don't know 50 60 years old and they're pretty much all men especially when you go to the tanneries there are like no women around so when i turn up and i am little and i look younger than i am as well um they they just don't know what to expect and so when (laughs) and when i start doing things that they're not used to it's kind of like she actually has no idea what she's doing but um I think given a few months and once you prove yourself, they definitely come around and it's been really great to work with them. Wow. And um, the other thing I love that you touched on, which is something I'm super passionate about, is this whole concept that minimum wage is a fair wage. Um, And I think that's such a big misconception uh, across consumers worldwide into, you know, they're made into thinking that these big brands that start to claim, you know, we pay um, at least minimum wage, but little do they know that minimum wage is not necessarily a fair wage. And often the government Governments do set the minimum wages lower, knowing that it makes their country more competitive in the manufacturing exactly. industry. Yeah, so you know, I love that. Like talking about paying, you know, two or three times that because it is such an important thing. But as you said, I'm sure they would have just been like, "Why? <laughs> well, why are you doing this?" Yeah. Awesome. Um, and just sort of going back to your question, I was trying to think whether I answered it completely, but you were talking about ethics and what does that actually mean to me. So we touched on the people side, which is the most important for me, but of course there are a number of factors to consider. So environmental, animal, you can, you can go on and on, and it's it's actually more of a complicated sort of discussion than I think people give it credit for. Um, but some of the other ways in which we try and do 
work as sustainably as possible is um, the tannery that we work with. It's It also supplies leather to, you know, some of the top luxury brands in Italy and France. And so they do actually comply with very strict environmental regulations. So I don't think anyone could deny that uh, the process of making leather itself and pretty much any other manufacturing industry, it has environmental impact. And so you need to work to offset that somehow. And um, with tanneries, it it's largely goes to waste management and water management. And w if that is done properly, there's no reason that it's any more harmful than, you know, pretty much any other industry. Um, and so the tannery that we work with, it's uh, audited by the Leather Working Group. So basically it's voluntary and, you know, they don't actually have to do it, but they do. And it looks at both social and environmental factors and how to make that more sustainable from a production side. And I think the last thing is around why leather, although perhaps I should let you sort of go into that. <laughs> That's fine. I was, so I was going to ask anyway, uh, why leather? And it's obviously such a, debatable topic you know it's something um that I really kind of struggle to kind of respond to consumers who kind of say to me okay well you're ethical and cruelty free but you know what about products sold with leather and I do have a very very limited range because I am still you know in a very kind of up and down mode about that um mm -hmm. and I think part of that struggle is because whilst we can say um you know about not using leather and that type of thing but the durability and the long-lasting factors are the things that make me still continue to use my leather products or you know I, I probably haven't bought leather products in the last 18 months but that's probably why so so what are your thoughts on that sure so I think that when you're talking to someone who's vegan it's going to be a battle that you will lose because you know personally they're, they're people who um, are morally opposed to using anything that is coming from an animal, whether that be milk or, or skin or whatever else it is. I take a, probably a more moderate approach to that. So I am not a vegetarian. I do realize that it's important to reduce um, meat consumption, and I'm doing that, but I'm not a vegetarian, and I don't think that it's as simple a debate as saying if you love animals you shouldn't be using them for, for making accessories out of you know there are other materials available because the, the biggest thing is often the thing the alternative that's used is called vegan leather which is not leather at all it's a petroleum byproduct and it's much the process of making this stuff is much more harmful to the environment and therefore to people than leather production um Secondly, it's also doesn't last as long. So it goes to the, the longevity aspect. I think for something to be truly sustainable, it, it's not just that it's made, you know, without harming animals or without harming the environment. I think it's it's never that simple. It's also you need to look at how long is it going to last me? How often does this process need to be repeated? How much waste is this going to create? Like I've my, we've got bags at home that were passed down from my grandfather. Like I would say that is pretty sustainable. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah, and in terms of how much we can do to ensure that the um, animal aspect of it has been considered is that we get our hides from New Zealand, which um, has a really strong animal hus husbandry standards, um, and it's tanned in a place where we know that they are very, very careful about the environment. 
And so that's probably the extent of how much we can trace it back and be comfortable with what we're using. Um, and lastly, and the, the industry is not very transparent, so it's hard to, te- to be sure about this, but as much as possible, we try and use hides that are the byproduct of the meat industry anyway. So what I actually really like is if you're going to eat meat, I think the best way to do it is that you really should be hunting it down and, and um, you know, preparing everything yourself. And that way, at least you know that you're using all of it and there's no wastage. And I think that's also the most respectful way. But short of that, you know, which not all of us have the ability to do that, but at least it's being aware of it. Exactly. Head to toe. And I don't know if you've read my, um, I've got a bit of a concept diet going on around this whole philosophy. So I'm very relate. I can relate so much to you, Rosh, um, which I've called the vegetarian diet, where I basically eat most of my meals um, vegetarian. I eat and yeah. indulge in maybe three meals a week. I have a Greek partner who we will eat an entire lamb at Easter. And again, that's that whole celebration and festivity. And I really talk about that um, when I was um, starting to write about this diet because I was like, that's where we've lost it. We've lost it because we've become so, um, you know, particular creatures that we only eat you know the breast of the chicken or we only eat you know the french cutlets like that's the problem you know we're not buying wastefulness exactly we're not buying entire beasts you know partly freezing them and then eating every single part and then you know being able to use the leather for something else um you, you know that that really is the problem at the end of the day it is um and sort of this is going to turn into such a much longer debate and discussion than probably planned for. But no, exactly. I mean, people talk about, oh, I eat quinoa. I'm a vegetarian. I don't touch animals. But it's like, well, do you know how that's impacting the farmers over in Peru? That was their staple food. And because of all the consumption in Western countries now, they can't afford what was once their staple food. Does that sound ethical? Like, it's just, it's not so simple. And I think it all, like, the most important thing is to start with trying to educate yourself and knowing that one thing always impacts something else, that there are always externalities that you probably haven't considered. But the best you can do is to try and change your lifestyle bit by bit and not try and sort of dive into it And because you're probably not going to get it right that way. Yeah, exactly. And no excessive consumption, which you would not have the need for with uh, beautifully made and long lasting bags, which is what I've seen from all of the amazing feedback on your website. So I think it's time now that we talked about your amazing crowdfunding campaign that you have literally just launched in the last, what, 24 to 36 hours. And I mean, I'll let you talk about the details, but combining tech with ethical fashion, uh, absolutely loving this. So tell us more. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, no, it's been about a year of work to get this up and running and we literally hit launch just under two days ago. So really exciting news. We're 38% funded and it's not even been 48 hours yet. So I'm, I'm pretty, wow. pretty comfortable with it. That is like a fairy tale story. <laughs> well, I've been hearing refresh like every five minutes. So <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty excited. But um, no, I just kind of got the idea for it when uh, based on my travels again, which is basically that I have the habit of losing things um, sometimes 
because I'm absent-minded, but usually like things are getting stolen when you travel or even when you're commuting. Um, and one particular instance was when I was working in Jakarta and this Ojek driver, and Ojek is a motorcycle taxi, and so to avoid the traffic, often I would take these motorcycle taxis. You jump on the back, they take you to your destination, you pay them and you get off like a taxi, better motorbike. Um, and he had my laptop bag at sort of the front and as I paid him, he drove off before I could get my bag back. And I was running after him in like peak out traffic in high heels and like work clothes. And I was just like, this is, this is terrible. So I think that instance really stuck with me. And I've heard so many examples from friends who have lost stuff or even just, you know, leaving the house and forgetting important things like your wallet or your keys. And so I thought, you know what, there's technology around now that does similar things. Why are we not combining it with the stuff that we carry every day? Like that makes sense to simplify life. Um, so I got in touch with sort of the seven or eight top uh, trackable manufacturers in the world um, and tested all of their samples over a few months. And uh, we went with one called Tracker. They were one of the first to release this sort of technology. And so their app works beautifully. Um, the actual item itself, the device, is the size of a coin. It's made of anodized steel and it's, it's really long-lasting um, and keeping with the sustainability theme because some of the others, you can't replace the battery. You have to replace the whole item with, I think, it's just silly. Um, whereas with this, it's powered by a simple watch battery that you can replace yourself and it lasts, the battery itself lasts sort of six to nine months depending on how heavily you use it. Um, and it's just really simple and it's, it's so invaluable for like your day-to-day. Definitely. I mean, I can think of my own examples of where that's happened. I remember leaving my luggage in the back of a taxi once and, gee, that was a nightmare to try and catch him to get it back. And he was almost going to charge me $80 as a delivery fee. So super handy. So can you tell me how does it actually work? Where does it sit? Because I think that's one of the things I love about it is that it's hidden within the, the item, isn't it? Yeah, so it's uh, it's it's hidden so that people, if you know, if your bag does get stolen, can't just take it out and throw it away. But um, we we've designed like this little pocket, like a pillowcase pocket, um, behind the logos where the tracker sits in there. So the only time you'd need to take it out is when you first receive your bag or your wallet, um, and you activate it by pressing a button, and so it pairs with your phone. Um, you download the app, and there's a number of use cases. So probably the most useful one that I like that always helps me out is um. If I leave the house without my purse, I'll get a message on my phone saying, uh, you've left your purse behind, go back and get it. And I can actually, there's like a hot or cold meter that tells you how close you are to the item. So if you're like, if you've hidden it underneath the couch or within magazines or whatever, you can actually get guided by your phone to go and find it. So that's the first one. Oh my God. I did not know it had that functionality. That is so exciting. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. It's actually a pretty great way of like just finding things that, especially if you have a messy house, which who doesn't? Um, the second one is probably more for when you're commuting or traveling, which is um, let's say that let's say that you're on a flight and your bag hasn't made it into the cargo underneath the plane. You'll get a message. It all depends on like you can actually set it up according to your lifestyle and when you want the alerts to come through. So if you work in a warehouse where you generally go leave your bag several meters away from you, you don't want the beeps coming through all day. So you can set, you can switch that off temporarily or set the range to be different. Um, the other one is often with girls, you know, we leave our phones inside our bags. 
So if someone did once ask me, what happens if I lose the bag, my phone's in there. How do I track it then? So it's family sharing. Um, you can give your partner or a friend access to your tracker and they can do the exact same thing and find it for you. Um, also vice versa. So if you lose your phone or if your phone gets stolen, you can use your bag to ring the phone, even if it's on silent. Wow. That is <laughs> absolutely love it. So, yeah, so, um, sorry, kind of I'm just going to, sorry, I'm just interjecting because when you talk, sometimes at the end of it, I don't know, because you might be on your mobile, it's just doing a <coughs> at the end of it. So I don't know if you can pull the, I just thought I'd, I'd tell you that because otherwise that the whole part will just go a bit fluffy, but um, yeah. Okay. Now I've held it further away now. Great. Thank you. So I just finished saying it was amazing and you just finished, I think, on the the, um, the family sharing part. Um, and the phone bit, did you get that? Yes, yeah. Okay, perfect. So, yeah, um, that's, those are the use cases, but the tech itself is actually pretty simple and it's been around for a while, so it's kind of just getting better each year. So since we started testing the trackers, um, it now comes with a bigger battery that lasts longer as well. It's, it's simple Bluetooth and crowd GPS. So even if you lose your item, say, in a different country, leaving a bat behind in, a, in a, an airport somewhere and you get on a flight, um, you like it's crowd GPS, meaning people in that country who are using the app, and especially in the bigger cities, tracker app is used by millions of people, it can pinpoint to you where your bag is. So it's a... Uh, Pretty handy, very nifty little tool. So great. And what? so what about when you fly? Are there any restrictions on that? No, not at all. Because it's like literally like wearing a watch, right? Because okay. are you talking about the battery aspect of it, whether that would be an issue? Yeah, or the GPS or something that's in it. Yeah, so it's not a GPS in it. It's a crowd GPS technology, which is uses the app. Um, but the device itself, the mechanics of it, it uses Bluetooth. Um, so it's like low BLE energy, and so there's no issues with flying at all. Oh, perfect! I love that. If you if it doesn't get on a flight, or you could almost, you know, when you hear about your luggage going on the wrong flight, you'd actually know where it was probably before the airline would. No, exactly. Like, and I've I've had that happen to me. Like Singapore Air lost my bags, and they took it to a totally different country and brought it back three days later. Um, this way I would at least know I wouldn't have had to wait two hours at the carousel because I'd know, hang on, my bag's like nowhere near here. It never even made it on. Oh, so genius. So absolute genius. So you've taken, you know, a year's worth of work to kind of pull this together. What were some of your kind of key learnings or most exciting moments about it? About the particular campaign you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gosh, there have been so many things. I would say if you're trying to launch something, um, the biggest sort of takeaway for me has been get your story and messaging very, very clear. You need to be able to explain it to people in a way that they can relate. Like, why is this going to help them? You know, how how is it useful in their lives? The second thing is to get them engaged and to give them reasons um, to actually be excited for what's coming up. So for months before we actually launched on our Instagram and other social media pages, um, we've been posting sort of sneak peeks of the products, of the new range, of the colors, um, and we've got some like great new colors coming up in the new selection, especially for girls. So like, you know, like the tangerine and that. Um, and so people really like they love being the first to know, and it builds a sense of community. They're my probably my two biggest takeaways. But for crowdfunding itself, I 
there have been loads of things. Um, do you want to hear some tips on that? Sure, go for it. I think there's so many of us that have often contemplated me, contemplated it, me included, um, but are either too scared to take the plunge, um, you know, so yeah, go for it. Okay, sure. Um, so the first thing is that it's all about the preparation, which you've probably heard, but it's you really need to be sure that when you launch, you've drummed up enough excitement and enough people who are ready to pledge and are excited to pledge that you're about 20 to 30% funded on the first day. And then you line up all of your press to land the next day so that there's social proof. You know, um, you, you work so hard to get to get press to write about you that you don't want that wasted on, on a blank page with no pledges because people come on there you know might get a thousand hits from from some great article but they get onto a page where there's no pledges and they're like oh no one's buying i'm not really interested like we're social animals we like to see that our friends or other people um trust the product enough to buy it so that was one of the biggest things that i've learned um by sort of speaking to different people and just like reading loads and loads of articles and it's that the strategy is paying off for us at the moment um so i've lined up all of the press and that takes about three months of work is just sending out press releases and um, very, very tailored emails and phone calls to journalists and bloggers to say, hey, we're doing this. We think this is of interest because it's a field that you're interested about. Um, make sure you're actually offering something of value to them, not just hassling them to write about you. Like, you know, it's like asking a stranger for help, like what's in it for them. Um, and in terms of just getting traffic to the page, because it's a numbers game. You want to get as many people to see your campaign as possible, and then you can assume that maybe 1% to 2% of them will actually pledge. Um, the conversion rate is around 1% to 2 generally. Um, and so, you know, you might use Facebook ads, which I'm considering doing sort of towards the second half of the campaign. Um, organically, press is a really great way, getting bloggers to review it. Uh, there's a TV interview coming up, which is going to be fun. Um, which awesome. Yeah, Um the first one I've ever done, so I was a bit nervous, but it was, it was actually really fun. It should be aired this week. Uh, but, yeah, just, just getting the word out and being genuine in, like, how you communicate what you're doing and why people should be excited about it. And I think people will surprise you with how generous they are and, and how willing they are to share what you're doing if they think that you've spent a lot of time working on it and it's something that you're passionate about. Definitely. So how many days do you have left? Oh, okay. So – um, I've got 33 days left. Um, and that was a very intentional sort of choice. Uh, basically there's all these facts, right? Crowdfunding now, because it's been around for, you know, three, four, maybe longer years. And so I did a lot of research around what's the best day to launch. What's the best time to launch, um, all sorts of tiny nitpicky things. And I found that Tuesdays are the best days to launch because that's when the, um, that's when people are most active, on you know online shopping or social sites it's a slow day at work and you want to launch between 7 and 9 a.m in the morning um and campaign is not necessarily more likely to be funded successfully if it's longer they recommend generally that it's 30 days or less to create a sense of urgency but i also wanted to end on a sunday because the way crowdfunding works is a lot of people pledge in the first couple of days and then there's a massive lull and it picks up again massively at, towards the end on the last few days, the last week. Um, and so you want to, you want your campaign to end on a day when people are actually available and sitting at home and on their laptops and excited and cheering along for you. So I wanted that to be a Sunday. 
Um, so we're ending on the 7th of November. So it's a total campaign of like 35 days. Wow. You have done your research, girl. Good on you. <laughs> you yeah, can tell you. you've definitely been looking into it for a while. Yeah. Look, there's just, I feel like there's so much to learn from people who have done it before you. And we're really fortunate in that there are thousands of campaigns that we can look to for inspiration, but I like numbers and I like actual hard evidence. And so there's, there's the people who have done these studies and it shows that certain days are better than others to launch. Certain campaign sizes are better. What should your um, average pledge size be? How should you word your perks? There's like loads of research and all of that. Sounds like a bit of your um, KPMG PwC days are coming back in to influence you. <laughs> I can't escape it. I don't think. <laughs> no, it's great, great background, great background. So, um, what? So, I think also the products that you're selling are at a huge discount to what they'll be when they're on your site permanently, which is obviously got to be another great incentive. So, if you can tell our customers what they can kind of look out for and what type, what types of leather goods are online. Um, in the in the campaign and what they can get and what the what the deals are really yeah sure um I mean, basically, because it is, it's a kickstart, it's a crowdfunding campaign, right? It's not just a store where you go and buy something. So I feel like you need to reward people who are trusting in you enough to pledge on a product that they might not get for a couple of months. Um, and that's the reason for like the massive like sales that are, that are available at the moment is that it's a way of saying thank you and also a reason for them to buy here as opposed to anywhere else. Um, so let me see. Like, we've actually got a fairly big collection. It was like a year. I think I went a bit overboard with eight products. But um, the main ones, my, my favorite ones, I would say, are the backpack. So there's a leather backpack, uh, which is if you get the early bird special. Can you hear me, Rochelle? Yeah. It's like it's cut out. Yep. So okay. just go back to uh, the leather backpack. Yeah. Okay. So the main, I would say, like, the, the key products for me from this collection, which – people have been most interested in and that I love are uh, the backpack. So there's a unisex leather backpack that's uh, that's got the trackable technology in it. Um, and if you get the early bird price, so we've set a few units of each style at early bird prices to, again, it's a bigger thank you for those who get in first. Um, and the campaign is in pounds. So gosh, I hope no one minds, but it's <laughs> 207 pounds for the backpack which is about $190 off retail, which wow. is a massive, massive saving. Um, and backpacks are so in right now, especially leather ones. Yeah, no, and they look beautiful. And I like we've seen it on both guys and girls, and we've had a number of people test it, and they're just they're, like really stunning. And there's, sec- you know, uh, dedicated sections for your laptop and like a mesh section for your pocket, um, for your charger, for your shoes. So it's, it's one of my favorites. I'm really proud of it. It took – I remember like staying up till 5am designing this thing. So I hope other people like it too. Um, what else? I also really like our briefcase. So it's, it's a bit more of a corporate one, that one, but um, it's still like modern enough that I think you could use it as an, as a day-to-day alternative to a messenger bag. And that's 231 pounds, which is about 300 USD. And that's 230 off retail. Um, and they all come in sort of five colors. There's black, navy, cognac, mocha and a really bright tangerine which I really love so yeah but they're probably the two that I would highlight but there's a number of other small things as well like clutches and weekenders and heaps of things 
gorgeous. And as we were talking a few weeks ago, that um, a surprising thing that people may not know is that whilst you started out with an appeal for women, that you've actually got a huge amount of male clients. Um, it was actually the other way around. So it started off with mostly men's stuff because uh, I found that with girls, it was a little bit harder to try and convince women to say, you know, spend um, a reasonable amount of money on a really, really high quality product, but one that doesn't have a brand name attached to it. Um, whereas for guys, I think it was actually much easier. Like once you explain to them, look, this is full grain leather, it's aniline, it basically is the strongest part of the leather, it's going to get better with time. Um, this is how it's made. It takes two and a half days to make each bag. You explain the history behind it. And I found that men are a bit more willing to give it a go, even though it's a new brand. And once they try it, you know, they love it and they come back for more. But um, with women, it's been a little bit harder. So now that we've been around as a brand for about a year and a half, um, it's been easier to launch a women's collection as well because there's a little bit more history behind it that people will trust us more. Very interesting. Very interesting. I love hearing about, you know, the, the unexpected, unexpected split between kind of male and female when people start and start to kind of have a bit of a pivot in terms of, um, their targeting. So thank you so much for sharing all of those tips on crowdfunding. I think, you know, um, for people that have a business, it's so interesting. And for people that have some kind of idea meddling in their mind, um, you know, also so interesting. And for people that just want to go on and buy products, because I know there's like these little communities of people that just really kind of stake out these online crowdfunding sites to get the coolest and latest and greatest in objects. Um, and it's only something that I've really kind of jumped on board with the last month, but it is awesome. There's so much cool stuff on it. Oh, crowdfunding is awesome. Like I pledged on a clutch a few years ago, which um, has a charger inside it because, and which I thought was like such a fabulous idea because my phone's always dying when I'm out. So um, it uses a wireless charger and basically you can just plug it in anytime you're on the move. So you find some really cool things. And I love that it feels so much more personal than buying from a, just a store. Like you get to see the founders, you see their faces, you see their call to action, you see why they're doing it. And um, it's really nerve wracking doing it yourself. Like I hated being on video, but it's um, the whole idea of crowdfunding is pretty special. I really like it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good luck for the campaign and listeners. Um, I'm going to be putting this up. So we're kind of into day two now, but I'm hoping this goes live uh, in a couple of days so that you can get in there and get on board and, um, support Rosh and the, uh, Isara leather collection that will the technology collection, I should say. Um, I also love to ask my guests, Rosh, what is uh-huh. your favorite ethical or eco-friendly, um, brand other than your own? Uh-huh. Uh, I love Reformation. They're an American brand that uses old fabric, so repurposes old fabric into beautiful new designs. And you would never look at their clothes and think, oh, that's that's like secondhand and reused. It looks amazing. Um, they've been around for a while, and I just I love everything about how they do eco-fashion. It's no longer like hippies that come to mind when you say the word. It's like it's actually genuinely beautiful clothes that you would never be embarrassed to wear, and the story behind it is fantastic. 
Yes, I just came across Reformation maybe a month ago, which is interesting because I kind of been, have been on this journey for about 18 months. Um, and I love their marketing because they're not, they don't really, you know, uh, have to push the whole ethical thing. It's just kind of something that kind of sits in the background and they've got this real kind of cool, funky, effective way of, you know, of selling their story and pitching their brand. So great choice. Yeah, definitely. Um, oh, well, I mean, I'm glad you think it's a great choice, but, but, but definitely it was more about their approach. I think it makes sense to focus on the product first because, you know, you, you need people to actually be excited about what you have to offer um, it can't be purely based on a feel-good feeling. It's um, if you make really great products and also make them well, there's no reason you can't combine the two incredibly well. Exactly, and I think that you know that's why I love these new brands that are coming out because I think that was what I really struggled with. Is I've always you know really been into that kind of um, trying to do better or trying to buy better but nothing ever seemed to really appeal for me. And you really have to kind of dig and find brands that aren't, as you say, that, you know, the hippie boho vibe, like that doesn't suit everyone that has that same purpose, but people seem to create thinking that that's the same, you know, that, that what, that's what those people want. Um, so, but there's so many more brands coming out now. No, that's that's definitely great to see. Give people wider choice and uh, more reasons to adopt better brands, right? Exactly, exactly. So, as the leather extraordinaire, I normally ask my guests for an eco-friendly tip or something of the sort, but I'm going to ask you, can you give us a tip on how to take care of our leather goods and make sure they last forever? Because I guess that is a bit of an eco-friendly thing because it means we don't have to get rid of it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, well, leather, if you're buying good quality stuff, should be lasting you decades, like genuinely decades and decades. It's not supposed to rot or disappear or, um, you know, start ripping and things. And it's always something that could be mended as well, which is what I love about it. It looks even better once it's been beaten up a bit. But the way to take care of it is just remember that it was once skin. So you need to condition it probably every four to six months depends on how often you use it and what the conditions are. But if it starts to feel dry, use a leather conditioner on it um, and just sort of lightly buff it with a cloth. If it ever gets wet, don't um, just let it dry naturally, like pat dry with a, with a few tissues and keep it away from like hair dryers, which I know people have used occasionally. Um, just keep it away from sources of direct heat and light. But that essentially will, will keep it going for years and years. Oh, perfect. And do you, who who can you go to to repair a handbag? Is it generally like a shoe repair or something like that? Is something you know does break? Yes, exactly. A cobbler would generally do it for you. So I've had all sorts of um, alterations done to my bags in like the past few years. And you know, like if you get a bag and you think, oh, this really needs to have metal feet, but it doesn't have it, you can take it to a shoe repairer to get that put in. Um, if your bag rips for whatever reason definitely something that they can fix so it's, it's a very sustainable option awesome tip I didn't even know that or f- ever think about that because I do love the metal feet on the bottom of one of my bags and I did think about that for a purchase that I had recently um great tip love it so good oh. thank you oh. You're welcome. Uh, So, Rosh, I love to end this off by um, also finding out 
Who has been your biggest inspiration to date or who continues to inspire you to do the things that you do? Oh, man, that's a really hard one. There are so many people. Um, Maybe the most inspirational one for now, if that helps to round it down. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've had so many mentors and people help me out along the way in, like, totally unrelated industries that I look up to for what they do. Um, but, okay, let me think. Shoes of Prey, the, the people who started Shoes of Prey have been really, really helpful, and I, I love what they've done with getting – they're essentially turning around the shoe industry, right? Um, design your own shoes online and have it delivered within a month. That's pretty epic. Uh, yeah, I'd probably so go with Shoes of Prey for now. Awesome. Have you ever spoken to Jody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I speak to Jody and Mike fairly regularly. They've been really, really helpful. Oh, awesome. Such a great story. Love that. I've never actually done it. I've gone on and I played with it and then I just got overwhelmed with the amount of choices. Exactly, right? <laughs> I think I, I think I just ended up going, maybe I should just get a black pair, <laughs> but it would completely kind of, you know, go against the whole reason why I was on there. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, maybe you can make your own perfect black pair. Exactly, exactly. Awesome, Rosh. Thank you so much for the chat. It's been so lovely to speak with you and listeners. You probably won't get to hear all of the gaps that we've had because we've had a bit of a nightmare of a Skype session, um, but we got there in the end. <laughs> so I appreciate you for um, sticking with me on this. And um, how do our followers uh, – sorry. So how do our listeners – follow you, get involved, um, and learn more about you? Sure. So, uh, well, we've got our website, which is constantly updated. It's isara.co, I-S-S-A-R-A.co, um, and all that social media. So, unfortunately, we couldn't get the same handle for every platform, but on um, Facebook and Instagram, it's isarahq, and on Twitter and Pinterest, it's isaraco. So very easy to follow along and I'm always on my email. So if anyone wants to email me, it's rosh at isara.co. I'll get back to you within a day. Wow. That is a great time commitment. I don't know how you stick to that and running all these different things and customizations. That's amazing. But um, kudos. Uh, You're awesome. So thank you so much and thanks again. And listeners, get out there, follow pledge on the campaign and get involved. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rochelle. Really appreciate your time. Cheers. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that podcast and learnt some more about crowdfunding. So that's the second crowdfunding guest um, that we've had on the show. And I just continue to learn more and more, starting to get a little bit more confident to jump on there and uh, run a campaign that I've been thinking about for some time. So I might put the question out to you guys jump onto our Facebook page and let us know. Are you thinking about starting a crowdfunding campaign? Do you have any questions? I'm sure that Rosh would be more than happy to jump on a bit of a comment stream. So I might do some posting on there. Um, Otherwise, I hope you leave the podcast today feeling inspired and ready to conquer the day or night ahead. 
Thank you. Bye.